Hi there, and welcome to the Love Sick Scribe podcast, where we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and where we grow in loving the Word and loving the one who is the Word, Jesus Christ. I am Dawn Hill, and I am the Love Sick Scribe. Deliverance is a hot topic, and it is one I have covered in different ways on this podcast. And as someone who came out of the New Apostolic Reformation slash hypercharismatic movement and who functioned in some capacity in deliverance ministry along with prophetic ministry, I have some things to say about this practice and doctrine held by diehard deliverance ministers. So today we are going to be discussing scripture in light of deliverance and demons, as well as some questions posed by deliverance ministers in response to questions from those who question deliverance ministry. And I want to state this up front before we get started. I believe that there are demons, and I do believe that there is a devil, that Satan exists. The Bible talks about demons. It talks about Satan. Demons are real. Jesus addressed demons. Jesus addressed Satan. So demons are real, and they do exist. And Satan is not the antithesis to God. He is a created being known as the father of lies and the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. There are many different words and uh, names that are assigned to Satan that we know from Scripture. However, there is a false dichotomy stated that those who question deliverance ministry do not believe in demons or the need for deliverance. I've heard that a number of times, and there may be, in fact, people that do deny that demons exist. But as for me and my, for, as for myself and for some of the others that would agree with me that demons do exist and Satan does exist, and that he certainly is an opponent in, uh, that we face uh, in this world, that we have three different adversaries we face. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Scripture makes that plain to us as well. Um, sometimes there's too much made of the devil, and sometimes the devil is ignored. And that's also dangerous as well. To ignore that the devil exists, that there's an adversary, is not wise, and it's not biblical. At the same time, to overemphasize demons is unbiblical. We are to keep our eyes on Christ, and I'm going to reiterate this even at the end of this podcast, and I hope that this is helpful to some of you. I know that this is probably going, as always, to great against what some people believe, and I'm prepared to get uh, some all kinds of different comments, both positive and negative, because that's how things go, but it's okay. But the main thing is we want to be biblical. So I want to address that up front, that there is this false dichotomy in saying that those who question deliverance ministry are automatically saying that demons don't exist. And where do demons go if we don't believe that? Let's just squash that false dichotomy right now. The issue here is deliverance ministry exclusive to professing Christians along with other concerns. That's the main rub that I have, along with some other people that may disagree with this, is that when you hear deliverance ministry talked about, it automatically is, we only do it on Christians. And I want to ask why? Do non-believers not get demons? Um, how do we deal with this? And there's going to be scripture that is misappropriated, I would argue, that is used to say that Christians can have demons. So we're going to talk about all this. We're going to look at the ministry of Jesus Christ and the Gospels in the four Gospels, and we're going to look at the book of Acts. And again, we're going to talk about this and, and ask our own questions and address some of these questions. So let's go ahead and dive in. I recently saw where a deliverance minister posed a few dozen arguments or questions, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that. It was over a few dozen. Some of the arguments were redundant. I'm not going to address all of them on here, but there were some questions. And then these are actually questions I've heard over time over the past few years after coming out of this movement and continuing to understand scripture better as far as what true deliverance is and what deliverance looks like for a Christian versus an unbeliever. 
the questions that this deliverance minister asked were why Christians can't have demons and why deliverance ministry is not for today. Here are some of the questions that were posed or could be posed. And you may have heard these questions before. If deliverance isn't for today, then where did all the demons go? Where does it say in the Bible that demons leave after someone is born again? Or some, a deliverance minister may say, show me scripture where it says that Christians cannot have demons. Another is mentioning Judas and how he was an apostle, but are we to say that he was not a Christian? If deliverance is not for believers, would a demon not come back seven times worse? Who needs deliverance if it is not for Christians? What do you do with Mark sixteen fifteen through 18? And I have also heard some say that those in scripture who had demons cast out were believers. So we're going to talk about that as well in addition to these questions. Having laid that out, let's look at some of the questions and look at the Gospels as well as Acts with regards to the demonic and do a topical Bible study together. So get your Bibles out, whether it's electronic or paper. As for me, I am old-fashioned. I like paper. So you may hear some rustling in the background of pages. Don't let that distract you. We're going to dive right into the Gospel of Matthew. And I have taken the time to go through and to read and to find the different passages that are mentioning demons and specifically Jesus casting them out. Now, there are a couple of references I'm going to make through scripture that are not going to have to do with that. There's, those are few and far between. Most of the ones I'm going to mention are the ones where there is a demon actually being cast out of a person by the power and authority of Jesus or in his name. Some of the verses I will read to you and others, I'm just going to mention what it's about. And I encourage you to go on your own time and to look at these verses on your own. It's very important that we stay in the word, that we understand the context of the word, and that we are knowing what the Bible says. Matthew 4.24 says, Jesus healed the multitudes. That's one of the first examples that we see, the first accounts that we see in scripture. So Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering acute pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. I also read verse 23 prior to that. The next passage I want to mention is one that is not an actual uh, account of Jesus casting out demons, but I do feel like that this is relevant to what we're talking about. This is in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 22. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And verse 23 says, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I have a bad habit of reading extra verses. I'm not going to apologize for that because you're reading the Bible. We should be reading more of it. So that's another verse. The next one I want to mention as far as Jesus casting out demons was in Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, and also 28 through 34. Verse 16 says, When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to Jesus, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took on our infirmities and carried our diseases. The next one is um, referenced Matthew chapter 8, verse 28 through 34. This is where Jesus heals two men with demons. Now, I want to note something here real quick, is that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these are known as the synoptic gospels, meaning that these are going to share very 
very similar, if not exact accounts, and they're going to go in the exact, uh, pretty much the exact same sequence. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels. The gospel according to John is the only one of the four that doesn't fall into that category because John's gospel is a completely different depiction of Jesus. And we're going to talk about that in a minute and something that's very interesting that you may not have recognized about the gospel of John. The next verse I want to mention or the next account is in Matthew chapter 9 verses 32 through 34. This is where Jesus heals a mute man. And again, some of these you're going to hear that they're going to sound like they repeat. That goes back to Matthew, Mark, and Luke being synoptic gospels. You'll start noticing that when we get to Mark. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 and 8, Jesus calls his 12 disciples and he gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. I would also like to point out here too, whenever you're reading scripture, it's really important that we, we recognize, first of all, who wrote the, the letter or who wrote the book, who the audience is and what the context is and, and how it can be applicable to us today. There are passages in scripture that are descriptive, that are telling us what's going on, the account, but it still doesn't mean that we don't need to know why it was going on. Now we see here in Matthew 10 that Jesus is calling his 12 disciples. They were also known as his apostles and he gives them authority. He gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Now, the next one that we're going to go to is Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32. And this is one of the ones that you find in the Synoptic Gospels as well. This is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I'm going to come back to this later. This is one that I do want to address because there were some things as I was looking up in some of the resources that I have while I was doing my Bible study on this that I found quite interesting. And I I kind of had a thought I wanted to share with you guys and get you pondering on it. Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45, addresses the return of an unclean spirit. And it is worth noting here that believers in Christ are not empty. There's the, this verse will be used uh, in deliverance ministry to say that a, pers- a Christian can have a demon and that if they don't, the, that the spirit can come back seven times. So you heard this question just a minute ago. If deliverance is not for believers, would a demon not come back seven times worse? Well, my response to that would be that Christians, born again believers, are not empty vessels. Cha- Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45, clearly help us to understand that This is talking about a person who's empty. Jesus is speaking here. This is before the Holy Spirit came. This is before people could be born again. This is during Jesus's earthly ministry. So a born again believer is not empty. They are not void of the Holy Spirit. And the context seems to be speaking to the current generation of people being addressed at that time by Jesus who were questioning him, which were the Pharisees and the scribes were questioning him. They had also been accusing him of casting out uh, Satan by Beelzebul. But I also want to say here that this account is used to demonize those who would address concerns about deliverance ministry, uh, accusing them of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and saying even that Jesus was told that he had a demon. And you may think, well, how is that? Why would someone say that? Or that's that's outlandish. You may be thinking you may not be thinking that you may think, oh, well, that's that's not out of uh, the realm of possibility for someone to say that. Um, I personally have had people say that. I have comments all over my social media at times of people accusing me of that, along with a lot of other things. And and I'm not the only one, but th- this c- scripture is used out of context. And it's basically to, first of all, equate someone and on the same par as Jesus Christ, and to also uh, assign a devil to someone or call them a Pharisee or a scribe in a derogatory way and say, 
well, you're committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because you're questioning what's going on here in this move or in this ministry. And I think that we need to be cautious about doing things like that. It could easily, easily be seen when someone does that as equating an individual with Christ and in turn shutting down discernment and even biblical testing by saying they are blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And this account seems to apply to Jesus's earthly ministry. So when you look at other verses, uh, other accounts of this in the Synoptic Gospels, in Mark or Luke, you're going to see that it makes a comment at the end of that account that it says it's referring to Jesus's earthly ministry. So the argument could be made is that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit had to do with Jesus in his earthly ministry and the Pharisees knowing that this was this was the Holy Spirit, and they were not blaspheming Christ. They were blaspheming the Holy Spirit. The next account I want to look at in Matthew is Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. This story is in also in the Synoptic Gospels, the faith of a Canaanite woman. We also see it in a little bit in the Syrophoenician woman. And the context here matters because, again, people will quote this in deliverance ministry saying that deliverance is the children's bread. Well, we need to back up for a minute because we need to see the context of what the children's bread is which is the word of God. It's, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus made it very clear in the gospels that he came to the house of Israel first. And so you'll see this even in this account that he references that, that the, the children's bread here is in reference to the house of Israel. And this is a beautiful glimpse into the Gentiles coming to Christ. We know this is one of the great mysteries in the Bible, in the Word of God, is that the nations would come to know God. It would not just be Israel, but it was a people that were set apart unto God. The people that are set apart are those that are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit and that have been saved and redeemed and reconciled back to the Father by the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is the people that are set apart unto the Lord. It's not an elite hierarchy. It's not a a remnant that people talk about, about trying to make the haves and have nots and those that will listen to certain people on the earth. This is about pointing back to Jesus Christ. This is the one that we are supposed to be listening to. And we are supposed to be following the word of God. And we need to take that seriously and, and not elevate a man or woman above God. We are to follow Christ. We are to imitate Christ. We are to, to obey his instructions. And again, I've heard people say this too, ask this question, well, if you're saying to obey Christ, then why aren't you obeying to cast out demons? Again, first of all, I would say we need to look at who the audience was then, who he was speaking to. And secondly, there is no formula in the Bible to cast out demons, We don't see a formula, and a lot of the things that are going on are extra-biblical revelation that's going on now. People are making up their own formula to do. They're adding on traditions to this, which one could argue that could be pharisaical because the Pharisees were known for adding on oral man-made traditions. One could also argue that the gospel should be sufficient enough. It's the power of the gospel unto salvation, according to Romans 1. So the believer today that's not casting out demons, are they less effective for the kingdom of God because they preach the gospel? Could someone not get set free from demons by hearing the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ? 
I think that's a fair question to, a- to ask just as much as the deliverance ministers think that their questions are fair to ask. The next verse that I would go to is in Matthew chapter 17. This is the last one in the Gospel of Mark. Matthew 17 verses 14 through 20. This is where Jesus heals a boy with a demon. And we know the overview of this. If you've read the, the scriptures before, this is where the man comes with his son who has had a, a demon that causes him to convulse and have seizures. He's had this since he was a young child. His disciples were not able to cast out the demon. He chastises his believers for uh, not having enough faith to do it. And so Jesus, uh, even in the presence of Jesus, this boy begins to convulse because of the demons. And the demon throws him into the fire and, and does all kinds of things to torment him. But Jesus casts this demon out of this young boy. Now we're going to move on to the Gospel of Mark, if you're still with me, in the Bible. The first passage we'll go to is Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. This is where Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit. And I want you to note what the people say in verse 27. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. They were seeing Jesus operate in the power and authority that he carried as the Son of God. Teaching in their synagogues, this man comes in, and he has an unclean spirit. Again, this is not the Christian church, so some people will use this verse as a proof text to say, well, this is is why Christians can have demons. We have no idea what this man believed. Nothing. And this is in a synagogue. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he told him to be quiet and to come out of him. And he came out. So we see here that he's clean, that he heals this man with an unclean spirit, which unclean could easily just mean defiled, that it's not from God. And the people are in awe. They're amazed at what they're seeing because they're seeing someone cast out demons with authority. And this is a new teaching that they've never seen before. The next passage I want to look at is in Matthew ch- chapter 1, verses 32 through 34. Jesus heals many. And in verse 39, he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. The next one is in Matthew chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. This is where the unclean spirits are testifying of God when coming out, and they are ordered by Jesus Christ not to speak. And guess what demons have to do? They have to obey God. This is Jesus that they are before, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of the living God, incarnate, fully God, fully man. But he is God standing before them. They have to obey Jesus. They have to. Chapter 3, verse 22 through 30 is the next one. This is, again, the synoptic gospel that we see that we saw in in Matthew, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Again, we're going to come back to that in just a little bit. Next is Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. This is where Jesus heals a man with a demon. This is where we see the, um, the, the legion of demons that are in this man, in the Gadarenes. The next passage is in Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. This is where Jesus sends out the 12 apostles. And this is similar to what happened in Matthew chapter 10 that we saw a little bit ago. Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30, the Syrophoenician woman's faith. And we talked about this with the Canaanite woman in the Gospel of Matthew. Again, it applies to the children's bread being the the gospel, the saving call, the redemptive message to the house of Israel. And this was given to a Gentile woman to bring deliverance to her daughter. The next passage is in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Jesus heals a boy with an unclean spirit. The next one I want to read and discuss with you is in Mark chapter 16, verses 14 through 20. Now, this particular passage right here, a lot, I I heard this passage, I don't know how many times when I was in this movement. 
And there's nothing wrong with this passage. The thing that we need to address, however, is that in some of your Bibles, depending on what translation you have, it may say that some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. And I'm going to read the footnote here for mine. It says, some manuscripts in the book with verses uh, verse 8, others include verse 9 through 20 immediately after verse 8. A few manuscripts insert additional material after verse 14. One Latin manuscript adds after verse 8 the following. But they respond briefly to Peter and those with him all that they had been told. And after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Other manuscripts include this same wording after verse 8, then continue with verses 9 through 20. So this is just something to be aware of. There are a few of these passages I know in John 8. Uh, Mark 16, and I believe there's one other maybe in First John, if I'm not mistaken, and I could be mistaken about that. But those two, I know for certain, there are some of the earlier manuscripts that do not contain these passages. This does not mean that it's not legitimate. We have to con- take this into consideration with these verses because some dispute that the wording and such does not sound like what Mark wrote. And so th- there is some debate about this. However, I, I was reading this and I want to point some things out to you. So let's go ahead and read Mark chapter 16, beginning with verse 14. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, They will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not harm them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. I want you to notice something here that, and I hadn't even noticed it until recently in reading this passage, because a lot of times the emphasis is always on Mark 16, 15 through 18, right? So when we hear that, we immediately, uh, many of us have heard this passage, it's 15 through 18, that's all that's read. But verse 14 and 19 and 20 are not read, but, and that's part of the context. So verse 14 says that Jesus appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So if you take that into context and you really hold on to this particular verse as far as saying, yes, we can cast out demons, which, you know, another argument could be made, well, are you drinking deadly poisons? Are you handling serpents? Um, you know, if you're going to take casting out demons literally, then you need to take the whole passage literally. You can't just pick and choose what you say is literal and what is symbolic. I've heard people do that as well. About taking up serpents is not about actually physically handling snakes. It's about dealing with the devil. Granted, people that do handle serpents, do snake handling in church, that is very unwise, and that is tempting God. We are not to do that. But my point in saying that is, is that you can't take a specific verse out and say, this is what you're supposed to do all the time, and leave the rest of it behind and ignore it. So we have to address that. But what I want to point out to you here is, look at this, verse 14, Jesus is rebuking them for their unbelief, the disciples. They were unbelieving, and they had hardness of heart because they did not believe those who saw him after he had risen. So then he gives them a command. He gives them a command. 
And he said to them, go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, which I would also remind you, the gospel and the signs and wonders that happened that we see in scripture, they went hand in hand. You don't see signs and wonders without the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And if people, I would, you know, I'm going to argue this too, as a side note, if there are, if there are people that are professing believers in Christ that are having demonic issues, then the first thing that needs to be addressed is that they know what the gospel is. The gospel according to Jesus Christ. It's not personal testimony. It's not personal experience. It's not Jesus walking into your room. It's not a dream. It's not any of that. The gospel of Jesus Christ is based on scripture. It's based on the word, the one who is the word. So if we don't know the gospel, then and if that person cannot proclaim the gospel according to scripture and they don't know why they need a savior, they're not born again. And that's the main, that's the first issue that needs to be addressed first and foremost. And my concern is that there are a lot of false converts and there are a lot of people that are trying to fix issues that they have with sin and assign demons to it. That's not helpful. And it's adding more bondage to people. We must go back to what the word of God says in context. But Jesus rebuked them for their unbelief. So what does he tell them? He tells them to go preach the gospel. Whoever believes is is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. Who are the ones that will believe? I think the argument could be made is that he's talking to his disciples because he's just rebuked them for their unbelief. Something to think about. We cannot quote 15 through 18 and ignore 14, 19, and 20 because those are relevant this, the audience that he's talking to, Jesus is talking to his 11 disciples who are left. He's rebuking them for their unbelief, and he's reminding them to preach the gospel. And those who believe, the signs will accompany those who believe. And I would argue that those who he's talking to, that, that the signs that will accompany are the ones that he's rebuking right there, which are his disciples. Now we're going to move on to the gospel according to Luke. And one of the passages I wanted to read again, I had some that I marked, as I said, that had nothing to do necessarily with casting out demons, but I feel this is relevant. Luke chapter four, verses 17 through 21. This is when Jesus is in the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So we know that this was a prophecy of Isaiah. It was fulfilled as he was reading it. And he is proclaiming that he has been anointed to proclaim good news to the poor. He has, been, he has been sent to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The next passage is in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 37. Jesus heals a man with an unclean demon. And in these accounts of the event, the people are amazed at his authority. We saw this in, in Mark. Verses 40 through 41 in the same chapter, Jesus heals many. The next passage is in uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 17 through 19, where Jesus ministers to a great multitude. The next chapter over, chapter 7, verses 20 through 21, messengers from John the Baptist come to speak to Jesus, and they want to know because John the Baptist is in prison, and he is asking if Jesus is the Messiah. 
We can see in Luke chapter 7, verse 20, when the men had come to them, they said, John the Baptist has sent to us saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In verse 21, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he goes on to answer John's disciples in verse 22. He says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news, preach to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This is another example we see here that that Jesus is confirming his ministry. He is, and he's also, if you... Um, an interesting fact to note here, if you do a little Bible study on this, that you will find when Jesus says these things that he's actually referencing the Old Testament. The next passage is in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. This is where women were accompanying Jesus, mentioning some women here who had been healed of evil spirits. Mary Magdalene was one of them from whom seven demons had gone. Uh, In Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 33, Jesus heals a man with a demon called Legion that we know from the Gospel of Mark. Luke chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus sends out the 12. Again, we saw that in Matthew and Mark. Luke chapter 9, verse 37 through 43, Jesus heals a boy with an unclean spirit. In uh, chapter 10, verses 17 through 20, this is the return of the 72 disciples, and the demons are subject to them in the name of Jesus. I think it's also important to uh, point out what Jesus says to them because they are rejoicing. They come back and, and say this in verse 18, and we'll actually back up. Jesus says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We are to fix our eyes on Christ. We are not to be demon-centered. We are not to fixate on demons. We are to fixate on Christ. Yes, we have things that we face in this world. Again, three adversaries, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We know in Romans 8, 13, that the Holy Spirit gives us the power to kill sin in our lives. We have been saved from the power of sin as believers in Christ. We're no longer under the penalty of sin. We're no longer under the wrath of God. We have been redeemed. We have been cleansed by the righteousness of Christ. And now we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And he helps us to kill sin. He helps us to overcome the world. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. I'm just talking about the adversary. So we do not need to fear demons or fear that some demon's going to jump off on us or that if we have a burst of anger that automatically that we have a, 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 ang- a spirit of anger that needs to be cast out. We are not dealing with the fact that people need proper biblical discipleship And they need to understand what sanctification means and what it means to be a true believer in Christ. So he reminds them of this. And and this is something for all of us to be reminded of. We, We all need to continue to keep our gaze upon Christ. Luke 11, 24 through 26 talks about the return of an unclean spirit, as we've mentioned before. And Luke chapter 11, verse 14 through 23, this is where Jesus is accused of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to read to you the last reference in Luke is in Luke chapter 22, verse 3. It says, Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And he went away and conferred with the chief verse four and the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. So we see here, this is actually telling that Satan indwelled Judas. He entered Judas. We see in the Gospels that Satan entered Judas. 
he indwelt Judas. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment and address that question that I presented earlier that deliverance ministers will say. Now, let's get to an interesting thing here. We get to the Gospel of John, and you're going to note something here in the Gospel of John. Demons are not mentioned. There is nothing in John that talks about Jesus casting out demons, about the disciples casting out demons. There is no mention of this type of ministry going on. Uh, The devil is mentioned, and he's noted in the Gospel of John as a liar, that he is a murderer. Um, It seems that John's focus in his gospel was on Jesus as the Messiah and on the cross where evil was defeated. I do want to, however, stay in John for just a moment, and I want to flip over to John chapter 13, beginning with verse 26 and going on to verse 30. Now, in the context of this, prior to a few verses up to 21, they uh, all the disciples are with Jesus. He's just washed their feet. They are sitting together at the table, and he is troubled in his spirit because he tells them, one of you will betray me. And as we get to the verse 26, because the disciples are asking him, who is it, Lord? And he says, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Satan enters Judas when they're sitting at the table reclining and and they're fellowshipping. And Jesus says, one of you are going to betray me. Jesus knew. He knew from the very beginning when he picked Judas that Judas was going to betray him. And I'm going to show you that here in just a minute through scripture. I wanted to cover these verses along with Luke 22, 3 due to the question regarding Judas. Judas was indeed an apostle of Christ. He was chosen by Jesus to be one of the 12, and he was also chosen to fulfill prophecy. He was not a believer. He was unclean, actually. We see in John chapter 6, verse 70 through 71, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. John 6, 64 says, But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So reading that passage of Scripture, it sounds like Judas is not a believer in Christ. It never says his name, but he mentions later on in 70 through 71 that one of them was a devil. And it says specifically it was Judas. In John chapter 13, verse 10, Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. And he again is referring to Judas here, it would seem. So Judas was not born again. He was not saved. There is nothing here to show, and we have no proof that Judas ever cast out demons. We have no proof that he ever healed anybody. He was just one of the 12, and he was also a thief. He stole from the money bag. We know that. He was a thief, and he was referred to as a devil by Jesus. He's referred to, he, he knows that Judas is going to betray him, and he chooses him. And we know that this is to fulfill Scripture. How do we know this? Well, let's turn to Acts, because Acts is always the book that a lot of people want to go to when they're talking about deliverance, ministry, and other things that we need to get back to Acts. So let's go to Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 16. This is Peter talking. 
And he's standing up in front of the brothers, and the company of persons was in all about 120. And he says in verse 16, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And he goes on to talk about what happened, and it references Psalm 69, verse 25, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office in Psalm 109, 8. So verse 21 says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And um, he goes on to, in verse 25, Peter does, I want you to notice this. This is also very interesting when you read this. He talks about casting lots to take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. The argument could be made, based on these scriptures, that Judas was not born again. Judas was not a believer in Christ. And we need to take that into consideration. And especially, too, this is, this is the gentle correction or the gentle suggestion that I want to offer to people who are calling people Judases. And basically, again, making that equivocation of you're a Judas and Jesus had a Judas, too. Well, these deliverance ministers are not Jesus, neither am I. And second of all, um, I'm not Judas because Judas was not born again. Judas was an unbeliever. He was a devil. He was a liar. He was a thief and he was unclean. According to scripture, he was purposed um, as a son of perdition. He, he's called a son of perdition in scripture. And he was sovereignly chosen by Jesus to fulfill prophecy and to fulfill the plan of redemption for Jesus to be crucified. In order for the plan of redemption to be fulfilled, what God orchestrated, and you can read this in Acts 2 if you like, of where Peter talks about that the, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, that God foreordained Jesus to be crucified. In order for that to happen, there had to be a betrayer. That was part of God's plan. That was his sovereign plan. And Judas was that man. Now, as uncomfortable as that may make us, that's what scripture says. And in the danger of comparing someone to Judas, not to mention comparing someone to Jesus and putting them, whether it's intentional or not, it, putting them on the same level on par with Jesus Christ. But then to say that someone who is expressing concerns, whether it may be in a loving way or maybe it's a more harsh way or however it is, I've learned, I've said this a few weeks ago, it doesn't matter how nice you say it. If people don't like what you're saying, they're going to get offended by it. And, and we're all capable of being offended. It, it is not just to a specific group. We are all are capable of being offended. We've all been offended. We've all had to repent of being offended. But the point is, whenever you are addressing something that someone, a sacred cow, if you will, or, or someone that people look up to, and you're addressing some potential error or concerns, there are going to be these accusations of, well, you're a Pharisee or you're this or that. But then to say that someone, uh, it's, it's shameful to a Judas for, for people to act like this and that even Jesus was betrayed as well. Hold on a second. You, I don't think the people understand what they're saying when they call someone and, equi and, and make them equivalent to Judas. They're calling them an unbeliever and they're calling them full of Satan full of the devil. If you're one of those people that said that, I encourage you, please think about what you're saying. Please think about what you're implying about a fellow brother or sister, if they are truly a believer in Christ. Please consider, consider that and know what scripture says. That's the, the gentle, the loving and gentle correction that I want to, to put out there to, to ponder. 
as for Acts, there are not that many uh, accounts in Acts of seeing casting demons out. We do see in Acts chapter 5 verse 16, it talks about the apostles doing many signs and wonders. We see in Acts 8, 4 through 8 that Philip was in Samaria. And I want to read that real quick because I've also heard uh, some misconstruing of this passage in scripture. In Acts chapter 8 verse 4 through 8, it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So I want you to notice here that there are people paying attention to what he's doing, but that doesn't say that the people that are having the demons cast out are the ones who are listening. So we need to look at at what that says in context and not misconstrue that. The next one is in Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 18. This is where Paul cast out the spirit of divination out of the girl that was following him for days and was declaring the truth, was proclaiming the truth. And in some translations, it says that she w- that they were proclaiming a way, not the way. So you could split hairs over that. But regardless, she was saying things that sounded true, but she was not born again. She was not a believer. She had a spirit that was not the Holy Spirit. She had a demon cast out. So these are some of the thoughts I want to share with you, um, having shared all these scriptures. Deliverance for Christians is not the same as for unbelievers. Scripture does not support born-again believers having indwelling demons. Scripture does support born-again believers belonging to God and walking in the way of sanctification, understanding what Scripture says about facing temptation and sin. And we also recognize that we face three opposing areas, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it would be foolish to deny, as we've said, the presence of the devil, just as it is equally foolish to place more emphasis on the devil while negating personal accountability for flesh and the temptations of the world. And this is the thing that I see in deliverance ministries that is concerning, along with the fact of saying, well, we only cast demons out of Christians. I find that very troubling to say something like that. Second of all, it's almost like that there's two elephants in the room with the flesh and the world. They're being ignored, and it's all this emphasis on the demonic. It's the demonic, the demonic, the demonic. And a lot of this has been picked up by old books. I, you know, I'm continuing as I get time because there's been things that we've had going on. I continue to review a book called Pigs in the Parlor. You can find this on YouTube when I do it. I post those videos every several weeks, and I do usually cover two chapters at a time. But I go in and look at this and test it against Scripture, and this is a very popular book on deliverance ministry. And if you listen to some of these deliverance ministers, I would dare say that they're getting some of their information, if not a lot of it, from this particular book along with others. There's, this is not the only deliverance ministry book out there, but it's an older one from the 1970s. We can't ignore the flesh and the world. Those are still opponents. And and one thing I've noticed in these accounts in scripture that we see is those who were set free from demonic powers and had demons cast out did not profess Christ. You'll be hard pressed. I mean, I I couldn't find it. When I read these passages, I didn't see any of them that were saying as that person that individual, that man or woman, oh, you are the true living God, and I'm a born again, I'm a, I'm a believer, and I'm so tormented. It appears the ones who did the talking were the demons professing Christ. Even with the man with the legion of demons, when that man comes up to him, he says, have you come to torment us before our time? Those are the demons talking, and even the demons needed permission to go into the pigs. They couldn't go wherever they wanted. They had to have God's permission. We see this in Job. Satan couldn't do whatever he wanted to to Job. He had to have God's permission. 
some of these things are really being ignored or they're being overlooked, I, I would argue, that when you're, there's certain beliefs and doctrines that are being perpetuated and created in these deliverance ministries, and yet we're not really looking at the scripture in context to see, okay, who was it that was actually professing Christ in these? Oh, yeah, it was the demons that were professing Christ because they recognized him. It's what scripture says. They recognized Jesus. They knew who he was. These people were not born-again believers because the Holy Spirit had not come, and it's important to note that. He had not been sent to dwell within believers because this was during Jesus' earthly ministry in the four Gospels. And we should also note that scripture sa- what Scripture says in John chapter 2, verse 19. When I was thinking about the, the issue with the fact that it was actually the demons that were confessing who Christ was, this was one of the passages that came to mind. In James chapter 2, verse 19, It says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So, and of course, this is talking about, you know, in the context, it's faith without works is dead. But that's just that one particular passage. That's what one of the things that came to mind when I was pondering on this is going, I don't see anybody in the scripture that's saying, oh, yes, you are the the living God as that that individual. It was the demons that were coming. I'm saying, are you going to torment us before our time? Please don't cast us into the abyss. Cast us in those pigs over there. And Jesus, it says Jesus gave them permission. In the synoptic gospels with the man with the legion of demons, they had to have permission. So something to think about there. And again, these things that I'm telling you, I want you to think about them and to test them and to get into scripture. And I hope that this is giving you a passion to look into scripture and to do maybe topical Bible studies on this and not just uh, just digest what someone is saying and, and say, oh, well, that's the truth. You know, you be a good Berean. Go look in Scripture. Go dig into this stuff. Don't just rely on extra-biblical revelation from these books that are written and people telling you their personal experiences and, well, in my experience with demons, this is what happened. Well, your experience is subjective. And there are other religions that cast out demons too, by the way. I mean, there's Hindus that cast demons out. There's other religions that practice this as well. Is their experience as valid as yours? Their practitioners are saying they're casting out demonic spirits, these evil entities. What do you say to them? They're not preaching the gospel. They're not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how do we make distinctions between their religion and what they're saying and what a deliverance minister is saying when they say that they're casting demons out of Christians only? We've got to be willing to look at this stuff, and and people need to quit demonizing uh, people just for asking questions and expressing concerns and pointing people back to Scripture. And I get that some people don't have as a loving of a tone as they should and such, but quite frankly, some of this stuff is frustrating, and it's, and it's grieving to see when people are just under more spiritual bondage, and they're not understanding biblical discipleship, and they're not understanding sanctification as a believer in Christ, and they're not understanding that they're in a fallen world and that they're going to deal with stuff and it's not always the devil and it's not always a a demon behind every corner there are times that you're going to deal with stuff and it's because you're in a fallen world and there's times that you're going to have things because there is an enemy that wants to attack you and he wants to devour you that he seeks about like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour and there's going to be times that you're going to be tempted with sin and that you're going to fall short of the glory of God because of sin. And guess what you can do as a believer in Christ? You repent. You can go before the throne of grace because you have a high priest who is ever interceding for you because you need intercession. I need intercession because we are not fully glorified. We have not received our glorified bodies. We are in a fallen world with flesh that is decaying and that we are going to die. Someday all of us are going to die. 
And it's important that we know what the truth is and that we understand that there is still victory. There is victory in Christ. We're not waiting to have victory. If we're in Christ, we already have victory. Why is that not being proclaimed in the deliverance ministries? I, I, and I'm, forgive me for saying this. I don't understand why we're telling people to cough stuff up and giving them trash cans to vomit sludge in and do all of these things and to, ha- and to tell them to do this. This is not modeled in Scripture, for one thing. Nowhere do we find this in Scripture. And creating all of these man-made doctrines and teachings and talking and having all of these books and webinars and e-courses and all of these, these conferences and such that are centered around the demonic and Jesus is in the background. I thought that we were supposed to focus on Christ. <laughs> Rant over. <laughs> I need to move on. But you get what I'm saying about this. This this is I'm passionate about this because I don't like seeing people, you know, deliverance ministers will say, "Well, these people that don't that argue against deliverance ministry, they just don't they don't uh, have any compassion." Oh, I do have compassion. As someone who was in this movement, now looking back, I have great compassion and I am repentant because I believe that I put more spiritual bondage on people than I ever did bringing them freedom in Christ. And that is grieving to me. That is absolutely grieving to me to understand that and, not, and realize that the true gospel was not being proclaimed. And then to see people going and and hopping from one conference to another to these deliverance ministers and not getting freedom and and not getting healing, or maybe there was a temporary relief. Again, we got to go back to the Bible, to biblical discipleship, to sanctification, to understanding, first of all, to make sure that person understands what the gospel is and that they are indeed born again. I truly believe that's one of the massive deficiencies that we have going on here in this. Another thing I find interesting is that there seems to be many more demons today than there were 2,000 years ago with a smaller population. Why is that? I heard a a deliverance minister recently that was casting out a thumb-sucking demon. Are you kidding me right now? Thumb-sucking demon. I have no words for this. I mean, this is the type of things that, are, that we're having to contend with, those of us that are actually speaking up and saying something. This is why you need to be in the Word of God daily. Because you are going to be, you and I both can be blown around by every wind of doctrine that comes through. And we're not going to be raised up in spiritual maturity by listening to all of this if we're not willing to go back to Scripture and say, what does Scripture say about this? What does Scripture, does Scripture talk about this particular spirit, for one thing? You're not going to find all the spirits in Scripture, but the main point is, is that apparently there's a lot more demons now than there were 2,000 years ago. A lot smaller population in the world. Something to think about. I also think about Paul and his thorn in the flesh and what he calls a messenger of Satan. Now, this could be a whole other topic to go through, but I'm throwing this out there for you to think about. And this is talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is where Paul is addressing the Corinthian church, and he's warning them about the super apostles that have come in, and that they're basically teaching things for their own gain and their own greed, and they're teaching their own revelations, and they're really slighting Paul, and they're trying to diminish Paul's ministry to the Corinthian church. And he talks about the sufferings that he endured as an apostle in 2 Corinthians 11. And then in 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about in the third person about how he re- had this revelation. He saw, he, he was caught up, whether in the spirit or in the body or out of the body, he didn't know, but he was caught up into heaven and he saw the third heaven. And he couldn't even tell what he saw. 
and I've talked about this before a little bit. But then he goes on to say, so that he wouldn't become conceited and puffed up because of the revelation that he received, a thorn in the flesh was given to him, a messenger of Satan. Now, some people have debated on what that is, if that was a physical ailment. There, um, there is some uh, discussion among theologians that the thorn in the flesh that he was given, a messenger of Satan, that because of the stonings that Paul endured, that he had uh, physical blindness. And there's even things in Galatians that could support that. Some people say that he had malaria. Some people say that he had physical ailments because of the malaria, such as the blindness. We don't know what that thorn in the flesh is. Some people uh, speculate that it was an actual person that was harassing Paul, that that was opposing his ministry. We don't know. But Paul puts this in here, and then he goes on to say, three times I pleaded with the Lord for it to leave me. And what was Jesus's response? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And from there, Paul goes on to say that he will boast in his weakness. Now, my question about that is, Paul was an apostle of Christ. He received the revelation from, of the gospel directly from Christ himself. He makes that clear in Galatians chapter 1. He says he was called as an, as an apostle by Christ himself. He had authority to write scripture. He had authority to cast out demons. And much of what Paul did, by the way, when you look in Acts, very rarely do you see him casting out demons. What does it say? He's going about and reasoning with people, teaching from the scripture. But we see Paul talk about this thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, and he pleaded with God, as we've said, and what Jesus said to him. So did Paul have a demon? Did the apostle Paul have a demon? And if he did, why did he plead with Jesus for it to leave? Why didn't he just cast it out? Why didn't he just do self-deliverance? Something to think about. As for the presence of demons in the world, as said, demons do exist. However, the focus of believers in Christ is to be on Christ himself. Based on what I came out of, it seems demons are more central than Christ. And I've made that point already. I could beat a dead horse, but I don't want to do that. But I will say this, is that more books, more webinars, more extra biblical revelation, as I've said, rather than the sufficiency of scripture to understand discipleship in Christ and true freedom that only comes through him is the emphasis. All those extra biblical things are the emphasis. And I hear deliverance ministers talk about the power of the Holy Spirit in them, in, in them as a minister, to, pra- to cast out demons from fellow believers. And I simply have to ask the question if these fellow believers have a different Holy Spirit than they do. I, I hear some, I listen to some of these deliverance ministers talk, interviews they do, their teachings they do, and I catch them saying that, well, it's the power of the Holy Spirit in me that can cast out that demon. Well, you say that you're only casting demons out of Christians. So is that a different Holy Spirit? Something to think about there. Deliverance from demons is for unbelievers. That's the argument that I'm going to stick with. Deliverance from demons is for unbelievers. It's indwelling demons. Deliverance from indwelling demons is for unbelievers. Believers in Christ are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have scripture to instruct us in how to deal with the devil. We submit ourselves to God. And after we've done that, we can resist the devil and he will flee from us. Why? Because we are submitted to God. We stand firm on the word of God. We put on the armor, which is really a type and shadow of reflecting the, the attributes of Christ. And we stand firm. We use the word of God as an offensive weapon. We don't do anything in our own power. We stand on what the scripture says, what the word says. What did Jesus say to the Satan in the wilderness? It is written. If we want to follow the specific example on that, then we follow the one who is the word, Jesus Christ, what he said to Satan. He said the word of God because the word of God 
is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing between joint and marrow, soul and spirit, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what we stand on. We stand firm on the word of God. We are continuously discipled in the word, which is one of the reasons I believe many fall prey to improper teaching about this type of ministry. And as I've said before, there is an appeal to experience and, and other religions can claim that as well. We must go back to scripture. The greatest deliverance for the born again believer, the greatest deliverance for the born again believer is salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That's good news. It is horrible news to tell a born again believer you still need deliverance. You still need demons cast out of you. You have objects in your house, and that's why you can't get freedom. You have a generational curse, and your great-great-grandmother played with a Ouija board, and that's why you can't get free. Your great-great-grandfather was a 33rd-degree Mason, Freemason. That's why you can't get free. You have witchcraft somewhere in your family. You're going to have to trace that back and find it so you can get freedom. That's not good news to a believer, a true believer in Christ. But the good news The true good news, the greatest deliverance is salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone. The one who uh, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Galatians 3, 13. We have scripture to instruct us. If the Holy Spirit is strong enough to save you, he is strong enough to keep you from demonic indwelling. Here's some scriptures that help us to understand the truth as believers in Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 says, He, this is Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. By the way, deliver in this, in this context, in verse 13, in the Greek, means to draw or snatch from danger, rescue, or deliver. This is more with the meaning of drawing to oneself rather than merely rescuing from someone or something. Christ delivers us from sin by his sacrifice, his propitiation, which, satisfy, which satisfies the wrath of God. And I would say that little is made of what Christ did on the cross and atoning finished work when we continue to disciple professing believers into the teaching of perpetually needing deliverance. And as far as when I say deliverance, I mean from indwelling demons. Rather, let's teach people, let's teach true believers in Christ how to be be victorious in the world through faith in Jesus Christ. And again, proper biblical discipleship being in a good, solid biblical church, understanding what sanctification means and what it looks like, and it's a continual process. I would ask how many of these individuals that are coming for deliverance ministry are repeat offenders in needing deliverance, and where is the victory in that? Where's the victory? When looking at Jesus being accused of having a demon and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the uh, Complete Word Study Dictionary, which is a reference I have, I use a lot of times to look up words and get a more thorough, a little bit more thorough definition about them. It says, Jesus Christ had absolute power over demons. It is impossible for a demon to indwell a believer in whose heart Christ dwells. This is, by the way, is under the Greek word for uh, demon possessed. When I looked this up in the Greek, this is what it said. And it, the, the um, theologian here referred to Mark chapter 3, verse 22. So I wanted to look at that real quick. Mark chapter 3, verse 22, talks about, again, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And in this passage, we see that Jesus is uh, talking to those who are accusing him of this. And the scribes had come down and saying that he was possessed by Beelzebul. And in verse 23, he, he says to them uh, in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, 
Surely I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but it is guilt, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, they were for for they were saying he Jesus has an unclean spirit. That is why he said that. Now, when you read that, and Jesus is saying Satan cannot cast out Satan, and a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Here's the question that I have when I read that passage, and this is again something to think about. How could God cast out demons from a believer and it not be a divided kingdom? I want you to ponder on that passage and ponder on that question because I I ponder on that myself. I want to look on as we begin to wrap up. We're going to look at Galatians chapter 1 verse 4. These are scriptures that are going to encourage you if you've come out of a ministry like this or a belief system like this or maybe you're still pondering on what I'm saying and not agreeing with it. I want you to consider these passages of scripture. Galatians chapter 1 verse 4. Paul is saying to the Galatians, who gave himself for our sins, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Romans chapter 5 verse 9 says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is good news. This is good news for those of us in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul tells the Thessalonians to wait for his son from heaven, for whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. A couple more passages I want to share with you. First John chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. This is a really good one to understand as far as our position in Christ Jesus, as far as salvation is concerned and sanctification. And to give us, again, good news as far as being born-again believers. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Acts chapter 26, verse 18. I have two more passages to share with you before we part ways today. Peter is ministering here and he's ministering the gospel. He's talking about the Jesus whom these people persecuted and that they had seen him resurrect from the dead. 
And he tells them in verse 18 to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, which is the words of Jesus Christ there. And lastly, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 5 says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I think this helps us understand this is why the gospel is needed. And it's not only needed to unbelievers, but we as believers need to hear the gospel. We need to hear the gospel frequently. And we need to be reminded of why we need Christ and the victory we have through Christ. This is the greatest deliverance. Are you going to incur um, suffering in this world? Are you going to incur potential attacks from the adversary or unbelievers that are being used by the devil to do wicked and atrocious things? Yes, you are. Yes, you most certainly are. Are you going to face temptations in this world? The lust of the flesh and the pride of life, the things that the scripture talks about, that the things in this world that can lead us astray. Are you going to face those things and be tempted by them? Yes, you are. Are you going to encounter times where you're tempted to sin or that you're going to even sin and you're going to have to go and repent before the Lord by the conviction of the Holy Spirit who is continuing to sanctify you as you go through this world? Yes, you are. But the good news is, dear believer, if you are a believer in Christ, you have victory because of Christ. He has overcome the power of sin in your life, and you now have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. You do not share cohabitation with a demon dwelling in your flesh or any other compartment or attic space or anything else in you if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you because he has sealed you. He seals you with the promise of eternal life. Ephesians talks about this. And we've talked about it before already. 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. There's so many passages that we could go to to help us to understand this. And, I, and for the life of me, I don't understand why there is such a fight to say that Christians can have indwelling demons and to not share the gospel and to not say, listen, you're battling with this. Let's see what scripture has to say about it. Let's get back to scripture. Let's pray together. Let's ask God for his grace and his mercy. Let's ask him to, to empower you to overcome whatever you're dealing with. Let's, let's get in and let's seek, get it. Let's get into the word and let's get the word into you so that you can understand the victory that you walk in because of Jesus Christ. And to understand that even when your life doesn't look victorious in this world, that doesn't change the fact that Christ has already conquered the power of sin. The Holy Spirit dwelling within true believers in Christ are empowered to walk in ways that glorify Christ. And that's the message that we should be telling believers. The greatest deliverance that you have had is from God himself, the wrath of God being poured out on you. And just because you go through things in this life that are difficult and trying and hard does not mean that you have a demon. It does not mean that you have need of deliverance to have something cast out of you to where you have to cough up something in order to prove that you had deliverance done and that you have to claw on the ground and writhe around and hiss like a snake and slither around like a snake and do all of these manifestations. 
And if that's happening and someone is saying that they're a professing believer in Christ, then we need to go back to the gospel. And for that precious soul, we need to minister the true gospel to them and make sure that they are even in the faith. And that is not to condemn anybody, and that is not to belittle anyone. This is said out of genuine concern for people and compassion. So please go to the scriptures and look at these. Do a study on this. Look, Take time. Take weeks to look at it. Take a month to look at it. Whatever you need to do, please go back to the Word of God and look at this and understand that you have victory. Even when you don't feel like it, dear believer, you have victory because of Christ. There is nothing that you can do that's going to earn you the victory, that's going to merit you victory, and that is ever going to keep you from being tempted, from being um, potentially outwardly attacked, from influenced in this world, unless you die. <laughs> that's the physically die and you go to be with the Lord in glory. That's the only way that you're going to escape any of that. But the thing is, is that we don't need to look at it as we are imprisoned here, even though this is the land of our affliction right now. What we need to do is understand that we have victory in Christ, we have good news to tell people, and that Christians do not need to go around and talk about how much bondage they are in with demons because there's no good news in that, and we don't look any different than non-believers by saying such things. If the Holy, again, if the Holy Spirit's big enough to save you, he's more powerful to save you, then the same Holy Spirit is much greater than any demon that could try to indwell you, and he is not going to cohabit with a demon period, end of discussion. People that disagree with that, that's fine. I still love you. Go back to scripture. I'm going back to scripture. I hope you do the same. And I hope that this podcast has been helpful to you. So I I enjoy as always to be on here, but I hope this has encouraged you. Be blessed today by this word. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me on Facebook and on Instagram at lovesickscribe. And if you enjoy reading, feel free to hop on over to lovesickscribe.com and subscribe to my blog. I've enjoyed being with you today, and I look forward to our next time together as we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and we continue to grow together in loving the Word and loving the one who is the Word, Jesus Christ. Blessings to you.